Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Camille Proctor. Camille is the mother of a 15-year-old autistic boy and the founder of The Color of Autism, a nonprofit organization committed to educating and assisting African-American families with autistic children. In this conversation, we discuss Camille's son and his interests, her ideas to reduce the stigma of autism in the Black community, religion's role in denying autism, the difficulty of getting a diagnosis, how to overcome distrust in the healthcare system, harmful stereotypes of autistic Black people, what made Camille decide to start The Color of Autism, and the different programs they offer, experiences specific to Black families, ideas to include more Black people in autism research, how to successfully teach police officers about autism, and advice for parents who want to be better allies to their autistic children. In this episode, discover what's possible when information fuels advocacy. To learn more about Camille, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Just a reminder, our new Leadership Series courses are now available for professionals in the field of autism services. Check out the latest bonus episode to learn about how our Leadership Series can help you become a better leader. Grab your course today at leadership.globalautismproject.org. And as a valued podcast listener, take advantage of the promo code Autism Podcast for an extra 10% off. You can find all the links in our show notes. And now I present you Camille Proctor. Hi, Camille. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Camille Proctor, and I'm the executive director and founder of the Color of Autism Foundation. All right. And we'll get into all of the great work that you guys are doing over there. But first, I wanted to start off by talking about your family. Now, you have an autistic son, correct? Yes. So tell us about him. How old is he and what are some of his interests? My son is 15 years old. His name is Ari and his interests are girls. Okay. (laughs) That age, right? Well, yeah, his interests, they're girls. He likes to travel, so he loves going places. That's really his interest, and girls. Okay, got it. Does he get to travel a lot? Yeah, we do a lot of travel. So what I do, instead of like buying like the PS4s or whatever number we're at now, because he's not really into that type of stuff, right? So it's hard. It used to be really hard for me to think of what to buy him for a birthday or any other milestone. But then I realized we just save up to go on trips. And so we go places that he wants to explore. Okay. What are some of his favorite places? So it's very random, just so you know. So he we, we've been to Dubai. We've been to Cuba. So he kind of like looks at places on the map and says, I want to go there. And so we figure out how to get there. So next year he wants to visit Turkey. So we're going to go visit Turkey. Oh, cool. I don't know what's there for him, but he just likes the experience of going. 
Okay. Does he like learning about new cultures and yes. trying different foods, stuff like that? He likes cultures. He's okay with food as long as they have chicken, which pretty much everyone does. But he likes the languages. That's his thing. He loves, you know, immersing himself in the language. And usually by about day two, he has a good understanding of what people are saying and he can talk back to them. Wow. That's amazing. Yes. That's his other thing. Uh Uh-huh. And the third being just being a teenager and annoying me. (laughs) (laughs) So. That's his, that's what he likes. Right, right. So did you know what autism was when your son was diagnosed? Yeah, I did. I Not only did I know what it was, I knew that he was autistic, but it just was difficult for me to get the diagnosis that I needed. We've talked on this podcast before about the stigma of autism within the Black community. And I wanted to hear about your experiences. So how does the stigma affect you and your family? Well, I think the biggest stigma was within my own community. So there was a little bit of an issue with me getting the diagnosis. And that was primarily because RA didn't have what they listed 13 years ago as being the typical traits of autism. You know, he made a lot of eye contact and he liked people. So autism was always excluded because of that, but he had no words. Our journey within our own community was difficult because there wasn't enough information that had been disseminated into my community about what autism was. And so we got a lot of, oh, he'll be okay. He's just slow. He's this. He said, I got a lot of unsolicited wives' tale-ish information. So that was difficult. And that was one of the reasons why I founded the Color of Autism Foundation is so that we wouldn't have the misinformation and then we wouldn't have families missing the early diagnosis that could help their loved ones thrive. So in my case, I'd say I was okay because I knew at around two or a little past two, he had his diagnosis. But at that time, that wasn't even common. I was talking to families who didn't get diagnosis until their children were in school. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that misinformation. What do people think when they hear the word autism? Um... Well, they don't think a lot about it. They think that autism is the end, like the end, beneath, final, (laughs) done. And they don't understand that it's just another door opening. And I I know it's easy for me to say that. It comes out easier. But the reality of it is, is that autism is not the end to anything. It's the beginning. And I think that's the first misnomer about autism. The second is that it's very common. Is more common than we would like to think. And so when you talk to communities of color, they instantaneously tell you that they don't have a family that's autistic. That doesn't run in their family. They don't know where it came from. It had to come from over here, over there, everywhere, but it's not something that they have. And so you have to remind them, and I always use this analogy, and it's just a, what I call all movies that Black people have seen. So I refer to this movie called Soul Food. And there was an uncle that lived in a bathroom and he had this broken television with rabbit ear antennas, but he lived with their mother in a bathroom. And I'm like, did you all have someone that lived with their grandmother, like an uncle or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he lived with their grandmother his whole life. And when she died, where did he go? Oh, my mother took him. 
Okay, so that was the person that was autistic. You have to take this long journey because, you know, we don't think about the things historically that have happened in our families. We just go to dismiss it. Like, that's not what that was. You know, and I've had parents say to me, well, I don't like that label. I don't like that. And I say, well, here's a new label, 89413. And they go, what's that? I said, it's prison inmate number. Because if you don't get him into services, right, and early intervention, you're setting him up for failure. You're setting him into a system where he gets into the school system. You don't like the label of autism. I don't know how that offends you, but since you don't like that label, just get ready for his new label because he's going to be labeled bad throughout school. He has attention deficit. He can't learn. He can't do anything. It's going to be a lot of can'ts and barriers for him. But if you embrace what you have been given, which is an autism diagnosis, you're able to then go seek out the right therapeutics for your child and your family. Because it's also important that the family get involved in a therapeutic process because it's very stressful. And I'm not blaming autistics for stressing out their parents, but I want them to understand that it's scary. And so we as parents, we bump our heads a bunch. Like, you know, we just kind of have, like, it's a great ideal having a kid and then they get here and we just don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I would like for people to understand that. It's like the things that parents do, I'd say 99% of it is not intentional. It's just that we think that we're doing what's right. And that's important for everyone to understand. And I think that we can learn what's right by communicating better. Yeah. So going back to kind of accepting that diagnosis. Previous guests who come on the podcast, they've talked about how religion plays a role in kind of almost this like denial of autism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. I mean, you get people that will say, pray it away, pray it away. I literally had this lady and it's not a restaurant anymore. So I can mention it um, in the old coffee pot in New Orleans. She literally put her hand on my son and did like a boom shock, a lock, a long prayer, like, ooh, be gone. And, I was, and he was just like, it was I, like, I didn't want to laugh, but I was laughing because <laughs> he was literally like, he was about three or four and he was like, <laughs> like, what's wrong with her? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so oftentimes it's just the go-to healer prayer. And prayer does heal, but people also forget the second part of the prayer is that prayer is also supposed to give you the spiritual initiative to take charge. And they forget about that. It's kind of like Shoeless Joe and Field of Dreams. They think if, (laughs) if you keep praying or you build it, it will come. Whatever it is that these people are waiting for. And most of them are waiting for the autism, because that's what they call it, to go away. It doesn't go away and it's not easy like that. And they also forget that when they're reaching out and they're talking about prayer, if they're religious, then they would understand that God does not give us anything that we can't handle. If you're religious, then you would understand, like I said, God doesn't make mistakes. So this is what you were given. So you have to take your blessing because everything that comes from God, and I'm not very religious at all, so I don't want anybody to go, oh, No, I'm not. But if you believe in these things, then you would know that your children are gifts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, definitely. So now 
you know, with this lack of understanding and children being misdiagnosed, therefore not getting the support they need, like there's also another side to it, right? Where if a parent is aware of what autism is, but they still choose not to seek out help, maybe because of distrust in the healthcare system. So what do you think about how that plays a factor? So, yeah, that does play a factor because, again, you're still going back to that stigma. So that parent who knows what it is, they're still kind of embarrassed when they don't seek out medical interventions. And what I mean by is getting the proper diagnosis and getting the proper support. And I think that for that parent who is leery about the medical system, one of the things I recommend is that they become more versed on what the therapies are and that they're also able to walk into an office and say, like, they should be able, I don't have a pad next to me, but they should be able to walk into an office with a pad and say, my child exhibits this, this, and this, and this. And I encourage parents to be their own data collectors on their children because you are the person that knows your child best. So if you can walk into that office and say X amount of times he's flapping, not that flapping is a bad thing, but X amount of times he's doing this, he's doing that, she's doing this, she's doing that, that gives them a better idea. And then your knowledge is going to be helpful in the process. So for example, the Color of Autism Foundation, we deliver uh, free parent training. And in our parent training, we're not training parents to be ABA techs or any type of therapeutic tech person. What we are training them on is that we're training them on being comfortable with their children, right? Being supportive of their children, but also being able to identify the things that their children need help with and being able to recognize what they are and properly communicate them to the therapeutic interventionalist. Because that is very important for parents to know what it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They are the experts of their own children. Let's talk about the color of autism. What made you decide to start it? It was really an interesting process. So you get the diagnosis and then you refer to Dr. Google, which isn't the best doctor. And you start looking for support. And I would go to support group meetings and I would ask questions. And my questions always made people feel uncomfortable. Like, what's going to happen when my son's about 12 and he is, you know, five foot eight or something like that? And then if he's still unable to talk and he gets approached by the police, something bad will happen to him. And I would always get the, no, 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 the police are our friends. They'll bring him home. Don't worry about that. Just put a little tether or something on them. And I'm like, what? That's not how that works. Not in my community, at least. You know, if there's a kid out there, especially with stemming, because people aren't that familiar with stemming. And so if my son's out stemming, you know, and he's alone and the police is talking to him, he could end up in harm's way. Sorry, Camille. We might have some listeners who might just be new to the autism world. Could you explain what stimming is? Well, I would like to better explain it. So stimming 
oftentimes it's self-stimulation as far as I know it to be. Sometimes there's good stimming, sometimes there's bad stimming. So it's really hard for me to explain it. Most of the stimming that my son does is self-soothing, like he's four. Yeah, self-soothing. I can't really explain it. And I wish I could better, but I don't try to explain it because as soon as I think I know the answer, I have an autistic tell me I don't know the answer. <laughs> so Yeah, I understand. Well, maybe could you just elaborate on how certain stimming behaviors in public might attract law enforcement? Sure. So for my son, oftentimes he'll he'll flap or he'll make a noise and his facial movements will come in and out like and if you're not familiar with that and you see a a 15 year old doing something like that and my son is six foot two for no reason because both of his parents are short but anyway (laughs) and he's you know doing whatever he's doing kicking up his feet like a little ninja or whatever you don't know what that is if he's outside your house and he's alone you'll call the police depending on what neighborhood you're in, you'll call the police. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the things that was very isolating for me because no one understood the talks that I would have to have with my family, the community. No one understood that I would go into a department store and have a sales girl tell me that I needed to whoop my child because he would not stop crying. And at the time, I didn't know that going to a department store was just sensory overload. There were too many things. There were lights, there were racks, there were noises. I didn't understand that those things were just making him miserable. And so I decided that because I didn't have a place and people like me didn't have a place, meaning we didn't have someone in our community to tell people like the sales girl, no, this is autism. This is what autism is. We didn't have someone to uplift a parent who's new to the process to give them hope. I decided to be that hope. Now, I don't know exactly why I decided to be that hope because I was only a year into it and I didn't really know anything. I just knew that there needed to be someone. We want to be able to have people empowered. We want to empower people and we want to bring efficacy to these communities because that's the other problem is that There hasn't been programs that were developed to bring efficacy. So one of the bigger problems that I've had with a lot of different nonprofits is that that they have these, like, everyone seems to think that they need the trip to the zoo or the trip to this or a sensory-friendly movie. And I'm not against any of those things. But when you're an African-American, you don't have a lot of the tools that you need within your home to just self-sustain. So if you can teach a family budgeting, how to budget, you know, money, because we're moving into those spaces now. We work with people at Chase who are helping our parents learn about money and helping young people learn about money. You know, what's a debit card? How do you keep track of your money? There needs to be more efficacy building and less less entertainment because, yeah, it's fun to have a family fun day. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, That family fun day means nothing when that kid is up at 3 a.m. pacing and no one can go to sleep because they're afraid that he's going to walk out the house. So we need to have more programs that teach you why and how you can help them become comfortable so they can go back to bed rather than 
giving them lots of cotton candy and stuff they don't need during the day. (laughs) But that's just me. Yeah, yeah. So now you are providing parent training. And are you also providing parent support groups? We do. We have parent support groups. We also have uh, youth support groups. And our youth group is person-led, as well as we have a social group for younger kids. And it's not for per se. Now, someone said to me, well, you know, if it's a social skills group, it should be with typical kids. And our particular social skills group is not with typical kids. It's led by a person on the spectrum. And the reason we don't have typical kids is because I feel, and this is just my opinion, I feel that autistics should be okay having their own spaces. And I feel that the way that you get a strong self-advocate is you start young, getting them acquainted with one another and having them build strong support bonds. That's just my opinion, not on the spectrum, but if I were, I would have enjoyed having someone that was like me at a young age to kind of be my backbone, meaning I had someone, and now with social media, they can keep in touch and they can be strength for one another. So that's really important. So we do that. And then we have a dad support group as well, encouraging fathers to talk about their feelings. And you know, the great thing that I'm seeing now is that more and more dads are involved. Uh, Years ago, it was just a mom, a mom thing. There was nothing but moms talking about, oh my Mm -hmm. God, now there's dads. And so I really like that. Do you see a difference in how fathers and mothers accept their children's autism? Um, A little bit, but it's not like it was. Years ago, dads were just kind of like aloof to the whole idea of like, now I don't see that as much. I see dads really embracing the processes. I mean, do I think that there's still a disconnect? Of course there is. But I mean, men and women aren't the same period. So you'll see that, but it's okay. I'm happy to see the involvement that fathers play in these children's lives because dads are, well, moms, so I'm not just counting moms because I'm a mom, obviously, but I think that dads don't get enough credit because they're important in both their sons and their daughters' lives. And I think that that's incredibly powerful to have a dad talk about how proud he is of his daughter who's autistic or his son. I think that's great. Yeah, definitely. So what are some of your ideas at The Color of Autism to reduce the stigma? Well, I think that acceptance is really the key. And I know people say it and it sounds really corny, but until we really accept that autistic people exist, and I say it just like that, they exist. Because every day we're finding out someone is autistic. A friend of mine who is a PhD, uh, she runs a human resource company. She does a lot of things. She's very accomplished. At 58, she found out she was autistic. She's 62 now. Wow. And she's had a full life of not knowing she was on the spectrum. And I think that it's really important that we're able to provide as a community the supports to our community members who are autistic so that they don't have to go through the seclusion and isolation that so many people before my son 
and future babies will have to go through. You know, it saddens me because there was just a young child in Utah who committed suicide, who was, I think, like 11 years old because she was black and autistic. It had been reported to the school district and they just said, oh, kids will be kids. Oh, wow. And so she didn't have the support that she needed. Obviously, her family supported her by reporting it and being adamant that this was happening, but no one did anything. And I think that we need to be more mindful of how we view autism, that we don't view it as this debilitating disability. Yeah. What do you think are some harmful stereotypes about autistic Black individuals? The biggest stereotype is the stereotype of the high-functioning autistic. It is it's a huge stereotype. So I'll get parents that'll say to me, oh, my child, he, he's so smart. He reads at a ninth grade level and he's only five. Okay, great. That's not a bad thing. And you should be proud of your great reader. But the reality of it is, is that the higher functioning unicorn person that you're speaking of, they typically have more issues. And what I mean by more issues, I don't mean that as a negative thing, but you got to think about it. You're smarter than everyone else, but you can't communicate with them. You have a lot to offer, but no one wants to take it. How does that make someone feel? You know, it doesn't make them feel accepted. And so a lot of that makes them very isolated in onsets like comorbidities like anxiety and depression. And now I'm not saying that every high-functioning person is miserable. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that I think people put too much value in that and then they don't attend to the other needs of that individual. They figure, just get them in great AP courses in school, they'll shine like a diamond and they'll flourish. And that's not it. You have to take care of the whole person. And so I think that's the biggest stigma. But going back to the dad thing, I had a dad call me And he said, I got to figure out what I'm doing wrong. And he goes, but I think I know what I'm doing wrong. And he didn't even tell me a story. I said, you're putting a lot of emphasis on the fact that your son is smart and you're pushing him academically. He said, yep. And then he got real quiet. He said, I should stop doing that, huh? I said, yep, because you're stressing him out. And I said, and you want to focus on the things that he actually likes doing. And you want to make sure that emotionally he is supported. So I guess... For me, the biggest stereotype is like the good doctor and (laughs) smart. And it's nothing, again, I'm not disparaging smart people. I just disparage that particular stereotype. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's a stereotype related specifically to autistic Black people? Yeah, um, that stereotype is that, gosh, I have, my list could go on and on. We have high levels of pain, so whatever you do to us doesn't matter. Our families aren't informed. Uh, The list could go on and on. But I think the biggest one is that they don't matter. And Mm. that's the biggest problem is that, unfortunately, Black autistics don't seem to matter. And we really have to change that. We have to change that because they do matter. And I think the more that people understand and realize within the Black community and outside the Black community that these individuals matter. And they deserve the same opportunities that everyone else has. And I want to set out to change that. When I hear that someone's 35 and they never had a real job, they have all of these different diplomas and plaques. 
that they've gotten from universities and stuff, but they haven't had a regular job. And they're at Starbucks. And I'm not knocking Starbucks, but they're there because no one's giving them an opportunity. That makes me really sad. It makes me really sad when people develop programs that are supposed to be placing autistics in these high-paying careers, but they don't understand that people in underserved communities don't have inroads to those programs, meaning they don't have the micro-program that gives them the training or gives them the skills to move up to job placement of that nature. And so they, we don't have a lot of trust fund kids <laughs> in underserved communities whose parents had the foresight to put this money away, get them tutors, get them this. There's a lot of things that really needs to be reckoned with, I think, in underserved communities of color. And that's Black, Brown. Yeah. What are some specific examples that make the Black parent experience different from that of other cultures? Well. The first one is that we're almost always dismissed. Our feelings are almost always dismissed. And then when we take issue with something, we're always seen as aggressive. Like when we don't agree, we're aggressive. Or she got upset just because we said, oh no, I disagree with that. And no matter what your tone is or what your posturing is, it always comes off as, oh, she was very aggressive. (laughs) He was very aggressive. Mm. And so that needs to stop. However, if someone white were to exhibit those same behaviors, oh, they were just anxious and they were just so full of anxiety. And it's just this coddling. And I'm just mean when I say it. So I would like for that to stop because I think that that's harmful as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've talked on this podcast before about how the current research around autism is lacking studies that include Black individuals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that with not including minorities in the research and assessments and treatment plans, as a result, everything gets written from a white-centric lens, right? And so what would you say are some of the differences related to Black culture, like within the home, that make this need to fill the gap important? Well, I mean, there's definitely a need. We need to be able to to look at these families and how they live, right? Mm-hmm. And we need to understand the who, what, why. That's what I call it. And you really can't get to those things if you're asking someone who has three kids, one is on the spectrum and two jobs to complete a survey or be part of a study for a $30 tar- Target gift card. Now, don't get me wrong. I just think that it's really stressful to a parent at that moment when you're talking to them about this study that you're giving them a $30 card for, they can't see the value in it because they're just looking at you like, I got all this stuff to do and I don't have time for it. But I think that in the inception of these studies, they need to have the color of autism or other nonprofits or scientists of color at the table because I think that they tend to miss some of the nuances. Just like I said, mom, three kids, two jobs, you know, those things are important in regards to the data collection, right? What are the stressors in the home, outside the home? What's the demographic of the school that they're going to? going to? You know, how many kids in a district have special needs? There's so much stuff that needs to be collected. 
But what keeps happening is that we have these scientists that are out here and they're pushing out these surveys and it's the same thing. The Pope is Catholic. That's the finding. It's basically like, okay, <laughs> there's a disparity in the underserved community. Well, we've known that for 20 years. What I would like to see, how is the disparity going to end? You can't end the disparity if you can't penetrate that community properly. And the reason they haven't been able to penetrate or get into these communities properly because of what their offerings are. It's plain and simple. You have to be able to offer a parent, and I'm not saying money is everything, but you have to understand that there has to be something beneficial. There has to be a beneficial outcome. You know, you need to be able to come to a parent and say, we're doing this study because we want to minimize the isolation you experience. We're doing this study because we want to make things better for your child. And you have to be able to tell them the specifics of it. Don't just say, oh, we just want you to fill out this little survey, check the box if he flaps, check the box at what age of dying. That's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Have you been asked to participate in any studies? Mm-hmm. And I always say no. <laughs> I say no to everyone that sends me a DM and an email because I strongly feel that if I'm not at the table or some of my colleagues aren't at the table, that I don't want to participate. I don't want to be part of it because I'm not going to be hurting families over to someone that got, I'm making this up by the way, $400,000 for a study and then they don't have any people of color at the table. So you got all this money, but you have $5 to offer my organization. And then another $2.50 to offer to the parents. I'll give you an example. There's an organization, they're doing a study, and for whatever reason, they don't think it's important to have the perspective of lived experience. And so I don't understand how you can do a study and not have lived experience be part of that study. Yeah, so what are they basing the data on? That's a great question. And I'm kind of tossing someone under the bus, but it's okay. I'm not really sure, but they seem to think that because they have loved ones who are on the spectrum, that that covers it. Okay. <laughs> like that covers, like, okay, so like, what are they measuring? It's parent interactions and things like that. Can't really go into it deeply, but let's just say there's a study they had a spot for a self-advocate. The self-advocate asked questions, real, real precise questions that really should have been a quick email with all the answers. They were dismissed, like, shoo, go away. It turned into a big thing because she simply wanted to, to ask questions. And not only was she a self-advocate, but she was also a parent. And I was going to be part of the study, but because of her treatment, I pulled out. Because I think it's very important that self-advocates, they are, they're parents, right? There are parents, there are friends, there are pastors, there are doctors. So they are our community. And they have diverse views of how things are through their lens. And we need to be able to capture that in the data that we collect, as well as 
for our own purpose of how we need to be treating people, which is, by the way, with kindness. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so your issue is that they're not willing to include people in the design of the study. Mm -hmm. Any study. Like stakeholders, whether they are autistic people or people of color. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, the stakeholders need to be diverse. They need to be diverse, period. You you can't do anything without representation. And you can't tell me through a second party, a second party lens, like, you know, for example, I know an American Indian or an indigenous person, should I say, see, language is right. So if I knew an indigenous person and I said, well, Based on what they told me, well, why couldn't I bring them on to the study? Instead of me saying, based on what this person told me, why can't that person be part of the study to tell their story? Because the story of an indigenous person is powerful. So they should be part of a study. I I think that you can't continue to just minimize who people are and not include them. And so that's one of my problems. Like you remember last year after the George Floyd murder, Every large company were crafting these statements, right? Mm-hmm. About, oh, this tragedy, da 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 da. And 90% of those were crafted by a white person and not a person with lived experience, not a person who knew what it was like to be black and knew what it was like to be harassed. Mm. I see your point. Yeah. What would you like to see being researched in the near future? in relation to autism and the Black community? Okay, so this is going to sound odd. So I'm not a person that's totally against genetic research. I don't want anybody to be tortured through genetic research, but I think that it's also important. I think that if there was something that could be presented that says autism is something, if it was something genetic, I think that Uh, the African community would benefit from knowing this. And I say this because instead of thinking that it just came from nowhere or they ate something or they did something or whatever, it is what it is. I call it the it is what it is survey Mm -hmm. slash move on Mm -hmm. survey. (laughs) Meaning this is what it is. Let's start these solutions. These are the solutions that we need. And then also... I would like for something to data to come back so how we as a community can better serve these families. So if we take a look at, like I said, the stressors that are in the communities, in the households, and then we come up with ways how we can better support families who have children on the autism spectrum. Because truth be told, we still have a high instance of these autistic individuals ending up in the criminal justice system. And I think that those numbers could be squashed if we just had the right dissemination of information for families. Right. How has your son responded when you teach him about interacting with police officers? Um, so that's interesting because he gets it and it's difficult. And I'm going to tell you why it's hard for him because he, He hasn't had any bad interactions. And that's what the problem is. It's like he hasn't really had a lot of bad interactions with the police or anyone. But I'm going to explain to you why. Mainly it's because my son 
is someone who, on appearance, when I say that, when you go face on, you're like, okay, you keep moving, right? So if you saw him do his version of STEMI, then you go, oh, like most of the people will stop and go, oh, that's why he's not responding to me, right? Because he's around a lot of enablers. So, so that's what the problem is, is that most people he's come in contact with know or can figure out within a certain time frame that maybe he's on the spectrum. And so he hasn't had any really bad interactions. Okay. The best way to say it. So, so we were in Dubai and we call my son the old man because no matter where he goes, within two seconds, he has to find a seat to sit down. He doesn't care where the seat is. So there was this couple and they were sitting on the couch. He just wouldn't sit next to them. He was just sitting there. Mm-hmm. And so, so the gentleman goes, is this young man with you? Because we're talking to him and he's not responding. And then, because he can't just go up and sit next. And he was, this man was like all ready to complain and everything. And then I said, yeah, he's um, autistic. And sometimes personal space is not like one of his before I could even finish the sentence, I was just going to explain that personal space is not one of his strong suits. The man was, <gasps> he can stay, 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 little boy, stay. <laughs> That's what always ends up happening. So thus far, he's met people with consciousness. Mm-hmm. Which is a great thing. Yeah, but my fear is that when he meets that person and when he meets and we haven't really, I would say we, we, we've done these little skits with him. And so we do this role play thing where we have someone that he doesn't know and we'll say, you know, say this and say that. And then he'll answer on cue. And then he says, well, I'm autistic. And then the person goes, what does that mean? He goes, well, I process different. And then he walks away. (laughs) Not helping him either. You want me to say, oh, we've done all of these things. We've done drill after drill. The thing is with Ari is that it is what it is. It's either he's, you'll never know when he's actually listening or not listening. But the one thing that we have told him is that the most important thing is that people know you're autistic. There's nothing wrong with that. So please tell people you're autistic. Tell them that they're overwhelming you. Tell them you need a timeout. Tell them they're invading your space. Mm hmm. Those are the important things. And in regards to the police, you know, we've told him you have to comply. I mean, we I've been telling him that for years. You have to comply. You have to be able to say what your name is and the other things that I listed. And you have to say, call my mother, you know, call my sister, call here's the numbers. And you have to be able to say the numbers for them to be able to call you. But most importantly, you have to comply. You have to. But that's the same conversation that every African-American mother has to their sons. Comply comply. And it's sad, but that's the only thing that we can say to them is comply. Yeah. Does he hold an ID card? He has he has an ID card and on his Apple Watch he has, you know, an app that we hope will help him. But it's it's a lot of like cuz he's never without me. Okay. And that's mainly because he's not as independent as a lot of people are. So he's not without someone. So yeah, I'm lightweight and enabler, but that's just the way it is because the world has become so scary lately that it's gotten even worse for me. Like it used to be a time where I was like, okay, I'm going to start letting you with this. Like, mm, I'm not going to let you do that. Mm, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with 
him being autistic, it just has everything. Like right now, we've I've careened into the reality that he's a black male. So that's scarier. Yeah. That's what people see first. Mm-hmm. On the other side, with regards to educating law enforcement about autism, have you seen any programs that are successful? Because I've heard of, in some instances, it's almost like taking a step backwards because people are explaining so much of the deficits of autism or kind of like the dangers of autism that it like reinforces the stereotypes. It does. And so here's one of my pet peeves. I think a lot of the police training, first of all, for police, training isn't going to help them. You can't have a, no offense to donuts or police, but donuts are delicious. So if police like donuts and coffee, I applaud them because that's a good thing to like. But here's the thing. You can't have a lunch and learn with police and teach them anything really about autistic people. I think that the focus is too heavy on those behaviors as a negative. And I think one of the ways that you train the police, and, I, and I'm trying to like think of things, is like we have a program where we take our youth group and we have the police come in and we have them support each other so they can forge organic friendships, right? And this is over weeks. This is not like on a Saturday in an auditorium. This is like weeks where they're getting to know Jeff, or they're getting to know Gina and some of the things that they like to do, some of the things that makes them anxious, some of the behaviors. And they get to understand better if they're immersed or get connected to one another. And that's the key. You have to be able to connect the two in order for the police to understand. So when we have this group, And we had them come in and we're going to start it up again. One of the um, cops said to me, he said, you know what? I saw a kid a couple of weeks ago and he was looking at license plates, just like your son. Because my son is this thing like he likes to travel. So he likes license plates. So he'll like stare at a car and he'll like be behind the car doing this. And he goes, you know, before I met your son, I would have thought that was someone trying to steal a car. But I walked up to the kid and I said, you like license plates? And he said, yeah, that one's from Virginia. And he was, because the policeman was in Virginia. He was like, yeah, Virginia. And then I saw one and they went in this whole conversation about license plate. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, and I'm thankful to you for that experience. He said, because really, honestly, he said, I would have just said, what are you doing in that car? And he said, and literally, he said, the kid wasn't even doing anything. He said, he was just standing there looking at the license plate. And he was looking at all the license plates. He said, but before that moment, I would have thought he was a perp. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow. And so that was helpful. I mean, that made me feel good that that's what he got out of it. He remembered some of the behaviors that we talked about. He remembered that and he put that into how his approach was to a potentially autistic person. I think the other problem with the police training and all of this police stuff is that they're focusing on babies. And trust me, babies do elope, young children do elope, but I think there's too much money being dumped into these sensory-friendly kits for the policemen and all of this other stuff. Yes, you do need sensory things to help you with a child who elopes or a child who's like maybe in a car accident and he's okay. You need those things, right? 
So I'm not saying get rid of them. But what I'm saying is there's a lot more emphasis put on these babies than it is on these young people. And I think that the police will encounter three times as many young people than they will babies. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to see some levity in it because I think it would benefit the community, not just the black community, the community, the autistic community, if there was more money and more training put into supporting and protecting them. Mm -hmm. I really like your program about building relationships over a period of time. Like that kind of humanizes the autistic person so that police officers, maybe even like that one officer that you're talking about, they're reminded of people that they've met before and that they've interacted with and they, they've hung out with and might be able to see something in other people within the community. So that's really great. I like that a lot. It's important because when we did police trainings in the past, I would always take my son Ari with me. And so we had this little exercise where we would have Ari walk and then we would have a policeman behind him. And I said, now we would tell the policeman, you have to call him and you have to command that he stops. And of course, Ari would keep walking. And then he, I said, go ahead, do what you would normally do. And he's like, I said, stop, stop, stop. And then Ari would eventually stop. And then the cop would ask him, he said, what's your name? And then Ari would say, no, what's your name? <laughs> and then the cop would say, no, what is your name? And Ari's like, no, what is your name? And then they would just go through this banter and it would just be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But there was a point to the ridiculousness, which was, how does that make you feel? He goes, well, I'm frustrated, like the cop. Oh, I'm frustrated. And normally I would just think the person was just trying to be smart. So a while ago, that person would have been on the ground and cuffed. I said, really? He said, because mm -hmm, I don't have the patience for this. And then he goes, but you know what? Now I have to look at how I'm asking the questions and how someone's replying to me. Yep. He said, because before this moment, I never even thought about the fact that I could be saying words that someone is not. He said, what's that word? I said, processing. Yeah, they're not processing it. <laughs> I've never thought about that. He said, I've never thought about that. Yeah, most people don't because it can be what they call like an invisible disability, right? Like people can go under the radar, walk around in the community, and on the surface, might not, quote, look autistic. And I know people get outraged with that, but what does looking autistic mean? And that's part of the challenge with protecting this community. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing. That's always been Ari's big thing is that when you have this, quote, unquote, atypical look, then people, you just kind of blend in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that people have to understand. They're always there. Mm -hmm. Always. What do you think about when you think of Ari's future? Um, so I'm hoping that his future will become bright. I know that's kind of corny to say that, but I hope it will. I mean, I want a lot of things to change. I'm hoping that he has a lot of opportunity, right? But I also realize that part of him having opportunities is the work that I'm doing in the future work that I will do. And my hope is that people will join me in this work and make more opportunities for Ari and other people like Ari. 
And so I'm hopeful. He's probably going to be an entrepreneur of some sort. I don't really see him, or maybe he would. Maybe if he if he has a job, I don't know what it will be. Because right now we're exploring options. And right now we're exploring him being an entrepreneur. Because I think that that's a lot easier, in my opinion, for a lot of people on the spectrum. But they need to be able to be self-sustaining in a way that makes them feel comfortable. And I'm not saying that working for someone is not a great option for a person on the spectrum. I'm just saying that it's entrepreneurship is something that, especially in Black families, no one's ever really looked at for their loved one on the spectrum or with any other type of disability. And now I think we need to shift the paradigm to looking into how we can build legacies for them. So that's my hope. Right now he has this little side hustle that he has with his, he has a sister who's an adult. And so they're making Pop-Tarts, gourmet Pop-Tarts. So he may be, yeah, they're real fancy. (laughs) So so he he could be the next, you know, Pop-Tart mogul, who knows? But I want him to be happy and I really want him to do whatever he wants to do and not what he thinks I want. And so if I could give a takeaway to parents is when we take us out of the equation, things get so much easier. (laughs) It just, we stop thinking about ourselves, us, things get so much easier for our kids. And that's what I had to discover. I had to stop thinking about the things that I wanted already to do. And I had to start asking him, what did he want to do? Mm-hmm. All right, Camille, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who are looking for ways to be better allies to their autistic children? Oh, so I think the best thing that you can do as a parent is you have to find an autistic ally. And don't be afraid to reach out to the community. Don't listen to the people that say they're mean, they're bullies, they're this, they're that. There's a lot of negative that's being thrown at autistics that I don't think is 100% fair. I think that both communities kind of go fight or flight when one, one says something that the other one doesn't like. But you got to put all that crap to the side and you really have to forge friendships with these young individuals because that's who your child is going to become. And I'm not saying that you have to model your child after these individuals that you meet. But what you'll find is that you'll get to understand some of the challenges that they've had to go through in their lives. And it'll help you in the decisions you make for your young child. Yeah, definitely. There seems to be kind of a war between parents and autistic advocates. And at the end of the day, they all just really want the same goal, which is acceptance for the community. So if people can just work together and see beyond their, I guess, disagreements in approaches sometimes, then they'll find that they can get a lot more done. Yeah. Both have to be willing to listen. And I think that it's getting a lot better between the two communities. Good. For the most part, I've always had positive interactions. I've always had positive interactions. And I think that when I realized I needed them, like they didn't need me, I needed them. Mm-hmm. That was helpful because I needed to know, well, why don't you like this? How did it make you feel? And so 
I think that parents need to really take the time to figure out ways to just be better for themselves too, you know? So take the time out for yourself and try and get as centered as possible because it's hard. But if you could just take out 10 minutes a day to do positive affirmations or just something for yourself, you know, once a week, take some time to do something that you like doing, to take the stress off of just being a parent. And I think that they'll be fine. I mean, it's easy for me to say now because I'm 15, almost well, next year it'll be 16 years in, but I'm, I have a 15 year old. He still has all of his limbs. <laughs> And he's just as annoying as any other teenager. So <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your perspective with us. I think the work that you're doing is so important to, you know, educate families and help break that stigma so that they can get the help that they need. How can people learn more about you? Well, you can learn more about the color of autism by going to thecolorofautism.org. And there you'll find information on our program, some of our previous works, and how you can donate. Because donating is helpful to us as well, because we're always crafting. And I forgot, and one last thing, we are crafting a program and we're working in partnership with a company called Autism Future. And we're crafting a program to teach autistics how to work in the film industry. Cool. So proceeds will go to that program. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, I'll put a link to your website in our show notes so people can go check out your work. All right. Thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to do this. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. As the name of this podcast suggests, autism affects children of every race, ethnic group, and socioeconomic status. Unfortunately, African-American autistic children are frequently met with late diagnosis or misdiagnosis due to a lack of accurate information for families. By building efficacy and empowering families to lessen their isolation, The Color of Autism is working to end the stigma in communities of color and help Black autistic people reach their full potential. Like Camille, are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, You'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.